Our scripture reading today comes from Luke 22, verses 39 through 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've been in this series in Luke for a long time now. We actually started this series in January of 2020, which is now more than a calendar year, and it's several COVID lifetimes in this book. So uh, yeah, we've taken a couple of breaks in between kind of here and there, but we always return to Luke. To Luke. We've been here a long time, actually. And, and every week we've talked about Jesus. We've talked about uh, who he is. We've watched him as he interacts with other people, as people love him, as people hate him. We've learned from him. We've learned what he's like. We've learned what God is like. We've learned what kind of kingdom Jesus is bringing. We've seen him tangle with his enemies and confront the prejudices of his day and redefine the good and wise life. It's almost too much to summarize here everything we've looked at, but we've seen Jesus in almost every conceivable situation and conversation and conflict you can possibly imagine, but not like this. This story, this text, we've seen nothing like this, not even close. Because regardless of what you ultimately believe about Jesus and the claims he makes about himself, you cannot read Luke's gospel and this eyewitness testimony to his personality and not see an unflappable, brilliant, poised person. He always knew what to do and what to say. He was never hurried. He was never impatient. He's a towering figure and force of nature in every encounter, in every story Luke has recorded for us until this night, this moment, in the Garden of Gethsemane. As horrible as his arrest and his abandonment and, and torture and crucifixion will be, and we're going to get there, this moment, we see a different side of Jesus, where we truly rediscover something about him. Something radically changes. We've never seen him like this. Mark's gospel um, adds a little texture to this moment. I know we're looking at Luke's, but I want you to just listen to this. This is Mark. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. Jesus falls flat on his face. He's barely able to walk any further and he prays. He's a wreck. Sorrow, anguish, agony. That's the word, agony. And Luke records this agony for us. Jesus' lowest moment right here. We have to see it and understand it because Jesus' agony is our only hope in three specific ways. So let's take a look. Grab your Bible, turn to Luke 22, 
Jesus has just been earnestly preparing his disciples for what is coming next. He's warned them over and over about his uh, betrayer, Judas. He's warned them to be prepared for his arrest and his death. But now is his moment to prepare himself. And he tells uh, us, and Luke tells us in verse 39, that Jesus led his disciples here back to the Mount of Olives. Jesus never seems to have stayed the night in Jerusalem while he was there. Uh, They would sleep outside the city, perhaps finding room and board in a nearby town, and sometimes they would just sleep outside. Tonight, Jesus leads them to a garden, and he tells them to pray that they would not enter into temptation. He then goes off by himself to pray, leaving his friends behind. And and Luke doesn't come out and say this, but I believe Jesus' agony, his true agony, begins here alone. It's interesting to me that Jesus, as he he enters this this moment, he he can't bring his closest friends with him. Uh, Not really. He, He brings them close, but they cannot enter this with him. He says, you need to stay here and I need to go over there. They can perhaps hear him and and pray uh, alongside of him, but they cannot pray with him. In fact, Jesus doesn't even ask for prayers for himself. He tells them to pray for their own temptation, and then he goes to pray. We'll get to the the content of what Jesus prays in in a second, but Luke tells us here that that an angel uh, comes to to comfort him in this moment. That's that's verse uh, 43, But, but even that seems poor comfort to Jesus, who in verse 44 Luke says, being in agony, Jesus began to pray even harder. Again, you you have to ask yourself, with as strong and vibrant a prayer life as Jesus had, what would he have to do for his disciples to remember him praying even harder than normal? Is he weeping? Is he pounding the ground? Is he lying dead still? All, All we know for sure is his sweat looked like blood dripping out of his body. The other gospel writers point out there, there was actual blood in his sweat. It's called uh, hematidrosis. I don't know if I said that right. I'm, I'm not a doctor. But apparently under intense pressure or fear, the blood vessels around your sweat glands contract and dilate quickly and violently and can cause them to rupture. And then blood enters the glands and is secreted through the pores of the skin. That's a real medical condition. His bodily response is giving us just a glimpse of the agony inside. That's a lot going on. But the first thing that stands out to me is Jesus' loneliness. He is utterly alone. And Jesus' loneliness is our only hope. This is happening on several levels for Jesus. First, as we saw earlier, Jesus cannot include his friends in this moment. Not really. He knows deep down that this next step is on him and him alone. But he does have his friends nearby for for comfort and support. And even after this agonizing prayer, Jesus comes out to find his friends sleeping, oblivious. They can't even be present for Jesus in the smallest way. Again, the other gospel writers like Mark, they they make this even more stark. Uh, Three times Jesus prays and returns to find his disciples sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus also knows that in a few short minutes, these same friends will abandon him. They'll even betray him. I mean, imagine how utterly alone that would make you feel to have everyone you've loved, all your dearest friends, in your worst moment run away from you, even deny you to your face. 
But none of that is actually the worst of it. Something is beginning to happen that Jesus has never faced, never for eternity faced, something you and I have never truly faced either. And the only way I can describe it is that the, the, the Father, his heavenly Father, is beginning to turn his face away from Jesus. It starts now. And we'll get to why in just a minute. But make no mistake, this is at the heart of Jesus' behavior here. As bad as it's going to get, and it's going to get bad. This is the specter before Jesus that has him pleading for mercy. There is a loneliness in this that God himself will not hear or respond to you that Jesus and Jesus alone has ever fully experienced. God willing, you and I will never have to go through that. And this is our only hope. Because in the midst of that existential dread that we see all over Jesus' behavior, that horrifying loneliness, this emotional and spiritual desertion, unlike anything we'll ever know, I pray, Jesus obeys. He obeys. Jesus' obedience is our only hope. There is no more powerful, more shocking, more world-changing prayer than the one you read in Luke 22, verse 4. Here's what Luke says in verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, Jesus has taught us all throughout the gospel that this kind of obedience leads to the good life, the blessed life. And he models it here as starkly as he possibly can. Notice that this is essentially the Lord's prayer. Our Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus prays his own prayer in his most desperate hour. And notice where he does it. All of this is an echo. If, if you listen carefully, there was another man long ago in another garden, if you remember your Bible story, who in his own moment of temptation prayed this way, not your will, Father, but my will be done. And Adam and Eve, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, took and ate the fruit, the one thing God forbade in his garden of paradise and the world has never recovered. And since that day, from that moment on, the biblical story has in essence asked one driving question over and over and over and over again. Who will obey? Who will, from pure love of the Father and obedience to him, obey the will of God? And no one has done it. No one until this night. Until this night. Not my will, says Jesus, but your will be done. In easier circumstances, with lower stakes, no human person has ever prayed this prayer as sincerely and as meaningfully as Jesus does here. Certainly you and I have never done this. We've never even come close to this. Because Jesus doesn't simply obey. Think of the depth of Jesus' obedience here. There are times in our lives, think about it this way, where we will make a huge decision. But we honestly have no clue what that decision will entail. We just don't. We decide to go to college. We decide to get our first job or to change jobs. And we make a commitment to it. But we don't really know what that means, right? Like we can't see ahead into the future. When we decide to get married or have children, we say vows for sure. We make a commitment, but we don't know what that is. 
When we say I do to someone or welcome a child into the world, it's only in hindsight that we really know what any of that meant. And honestly, that's God's mercy because if we could see it all, it would overwhelm us. We'd be like, I, I don't know if I can do that. It's too much. As it is, we still mess up those commitments one moment at a time, let alone seeing and feeling the whole thing at once. This is not true for Jesus. He sees everything. Make no mistake. When Jesus falls flat on the ground and begins to pray to his Father, he sees and feels every moment, every sting, every blow, every cut from the whip. He feels every betrayal, every abandonment. He hears every mocking word. He can already feel the dryness of his mouth, the cold wind on his naked body, the nails in his hands, the slow suffocation of his coming crucifixion. He could hear his own people, the people he came to save screaming for his execution and death. It's all right there for him. In a moment, all of that is before him, chasing him, pursuing him. And all he has to do is say no. We don't think about this often enough. All he has to do is say, Father, no. And it's all over. Remember, Jesus entered temptation alone earlier in Luke's gospel in the wilderness, and Satan always gives Jesus a simple, immediate step to disobey. And it's as, you know, we, it's as if G, Satan says, Jesus, it's not hard. I'll give you your kingdom. I'll give you all earthly kingdoms. Just bow one knee to me. That's it. Now Jesus doesn't even have to move. We, we, we can't hear Satan in this moment, but I, I have to imagine that he's tempting Jesus. Jesus, this night is going to be unfathomably painful. I can almost hear him saying, unimaginably horrific. Look, look at what's coming for you. Look at yourself now. It almost kills you just to think about it. Just say no and it will all be over. Just simple word, no. Can you imagine that? How tempting that would be? To see the worst night of your life? To see the pain and the anguish so clearly that you can already feel it and to be offered a way out? Who among us could pray, not my will, but your will be done? The Bible gives us an answer to that question. Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Even this story shows us, while, while Jesus' agony brings him into a cosmic conflict against humanity's worst enemy, while Jesus wrestles with an obedience to his Father that is so deep and penetrating, that on it pivots the fate of the entire universe. What are the disciples doing? What are the best and the brightest of humanity doing who have trained rigorously with Jesus for three years? They're asleep. They're asleep. They were given the simplest command. Stay awake and pray that you don't fall into temptation. What did they do? They immediately disobey. They can't help it. And neither can we. None of us could do this. We are still, as, as Paul the Apostle puts it, in the first Adam. We're still in the Garden of Eden, disobeying. We still choose the forbidden fruit. We need a new Adam, a new representative, a new humanity who can obey. That's why Jesus' obedience is our only hope. Because only he can obey where we will always disobey. But not only that, even that isn't enough. 
there's one more requirement. We need more than Jesus' abandonment and his obedience. Jesus' cup is our only hope. This is the central plea notice of Jesus' prayer. He says, Father, anything but the cup, anything but the cup. But not my will, your will be done. Now what's he talking about? What is the cup? What could be worse than the abandonment and the suffering we've already talked about? Okay, here's a clue. Listen to just a few of these verses. These are all from the Old Testament. Psalm 75. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed. And he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. This is Isaiah 51. Awake, awake, stand up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. This is Jeremiah 25. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Now, so what is Jesus looking at here? What's he staring down? What's driving this agony? It's the wrath of God. The judgment due from Genesis 3 on. And it has been accruing interest in every rebellious thought, every evil deed, from that moment in the garden and beyond. Think of the weight of that wrath. What does humanity deserve for thousands and thousands of years of evil and oppression and violence, murder, neglect, idolatry? I mean, think about that, the weight of all of that. What payment, what cost could possibly cover that? And what horrors must it include? What would it be like to be cut off from God? Again, no one, no one has ever felt that before. Even the most evil person you could possibly imagine has never been cut off from God in their lifetime. The Holy Spirit is always working. The Father is always wooing and protecting from the worst consequences of sin. Always. Now imagine Jesus who lived his whole human life seeking the face of his Father. The face he had known in perfect community from eternity past. The second person of the Holy Trinity. Imagine Jesus contemplating for the first time, for all eternity, the wrath of God. The rupturing, even temporarily, of the connection between himself and his Father. If you ever wondered what hell is like, This moment and every moment after to the cross is as clear a picture as I pray you will ever get. Is it any wonder that Jesus must ask if this is possible, if there's any other way? Father, remove this cup, but not my will. Your will be done. Now, we're on holy ground here. If if you sense hesitancy from me to talk too much, about what Jesus endured in this moment as he contemplated drinking this cup of God's wrath. It is only because it is so profoundly mysterious and so profoundly horrifying to me that I don't want to pretend to fully understand it. I don't. I I can't. And neither can you. And that's the point. The cup, we could not endure it. Only one can. And that's Jesus. And his whole mission in the world could be summarized this way. He came to drink the cup that we deserve but could never endure. To give us the cup we could never earn but desperately need. 
This is why only a few verses before this moment, there's a reason these stories are so close together. In verse 20, Jesus gives us another cup. He said, this cup is poured out for you. This cup is poured out for you, and it's the new covenant in my blood. The communion cup is the opposite of the wrathful cup. The cup of Jesus' blood poured out creates a church community of God's redeemed people. We'll never be lonely, never rejected, never abandoned, never betrayed. It creates joy and hope in God's rescue because our acceptance is no longer about our obedience. Jesus' obedience becomes ours. And now we're free to obey God, not because we have to, but because we get to. And most importantly, it is a divine invitation to relationship with King Jesus face to face. Never to be cut off again. And Jesus knows if we're ever going to sit face to face with him and his Father in a new creation, if the cup of the Lord's Supper can ever be what it was meant to be, Another cup must be drunk first. And his obedience and rejection and submission is the only way. It is our only hope. If you have not put your faith in Jesus like this, if you do not see in this garden prayer your only hope in this life and the next, I want you to hear me say, consider this. There's nothing more important than this. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Do you understand the price that he pays? Do you see why he does what he does? Do you begin to understand that only a deep, deep love, yes, for his Father, but for you, is the only thing that will explain why Jesus was willing to go through what he goes through, that Jesus does this, yes, for all, but he does it for you? If you have not trusted in him like this, consider this. And if you want more information on what it means to trust Jesus, I ask as you fill out your attendance card, to let us know to reach out to you. For those of you who have trusted in Jesus, let us, make the Lord's, let us take the Lord's Supper together right now as a reminder that this is our only hope. So wherever you are, gather the elements. Take freely the cup of Jesus' love. Remember the cost. Never forget but rejoice in hope, always.